welcome to Pride Pals, the podcast where I, entertainment writer Alex Ewing, sit down with some friends to celebrate queer entertainment. Today I am with literary critic and museologist Rhiannon White to discuss Kissing the Witch and queer fairy tales. Kissing the Witch, Old Tales in New Skin, is a collection of 13 reimagined fairy tales inspired by traditional European sources such as Brothers Grimm, um, Hans Christian Andersen and the such by Irish author Emma Donoghue. Through our discussion of witches and beasts, we discuss the potential of fairy tales and magic as a way of providing agency to underrepresented voices and queer stories. A short collection, I highly recommend anyone to go and read this book after listening to this episode if you are so inclined. You won't regret it. But let's get chatting. to Pride Pals. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I am, I am, I say this every episode, but I am really excited about what we're talking about today, which is uh, fairy tales and queer fairy tales, um, and specifically one book that we're going to use to bounce off some ideas. Do you want to introduce yourself? I already have, but it's nice to hear yeah. it in your own voice. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Um, so um, I'm Rhiannon. Um, I use uh, she, her pronouns and I am a former literature student and also a former uh, museum studies student and I'm really interested in both uh, literature and heritage um, spaces as avenues for creating um, genuinely excellent and varied queer representation. That's very concise and succinct. That's a very good description. (laughs) Um, So obviously, like you say, being a literature student, the topic we're talking about today uh, is is rife with lots of juicy things to talk about. So before we get into that, what is your experience with Kissing the Witch, which is the main kind of book we'll be bouncing off today, and queer fairy tales in general? Yes. um, So I... Um, discovered Kissing the Witch by Emma Donoghue when I was in the second year of my undergraduate degree. Um, so I had just started um, like my first dissertation project and mm-hmm. I wanted to write it on basically um, sapphic stories, on stories of women who love women. Um, and magic realism. So I wanted to explore mm-hmm. magic realism and what I thought was its kind of queer potential. Um, so I wasn't, I was very interested in fairy tales then as well and like kind of modern guard of fairy tales because that was something that was kind of like, I was kind of brought up on mm-hmm. when I was maybe 16, 17, 18 before I went to university to study literature. So. Mm-hmm. One of my A-level texts was The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. Oh, nice. And so this, yeah, so this kind of new guard of, like, feminist fairy tales were very interesting to me. But I wasn't specifically looking to write something on fairy tale. I was looking at um, other more varied genres that I felt, like, included a magic realism element to make their lesbian love stories work. Um, and my supervisor suggested this book and asked if I'd ever read it. Um, and I hadn't. And she was like, well, I, I kind of don't feel like you can do this project without at least knowing this is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really highly recommended it. Um, and once I'd read it, it became really, really integral to my dissertation um, and was one of two main texts that I ended up writing on. So that's kind of how I came to it. And it means that I am um, very attached to it and I'm very fond of it um, because it had such a kind of important role in kind of my early thinking about these things which has mm-hmm. moved on quite a lot in that time but like I'm really st- I'm still really excited about um what this book in particular does yeah that's it's nice to hear that you can still be excited about that stuff uh the other book in your dissertation was that um was it Tanglewood and Brian or some other book um no so Tangleweed and Brian is um was has been released since 
I graduated. So oh, okay. um, it was much more recent. But my, the other book I was looking at, um, I was looking at um, Girl Meets Boy by Ali Smith. So that's an example of, oh, okay. um, yeah, a text that isn't a fairy tale text. But I felt like I was making an argument that it had fairy tale elements and that the magic realism in it was kind of integral to what it was doing. And it was, yeah, so it kind of has a fairy tale element, I suppose. But that's very interesting because they do that through um, kind of Greek myth and kind of classical figures in that mm-hmm. book. Um, yeah. That's cool. Uh, so you were saying about um, magical realism and fairy tales having potential within like queer readings and queer writing. Yeah. How how do you see that? How why do you think that is? I think like I said kind of especially because I'm looking particularly at like representations of queerness for women. Um and I feel like a lot of a lot of these um lesbian kind of what you might call lesbian feminist fairy tale texts have their roots in feminist fairy tale texts that didn't really include an element about um, sexuality, or if not, they were like kind of critiques or examinations of a woman's place within he- like heterosexual sexuality, mm-hmm. um, which is like super Angela Carter. Like that was kind of the whole point. Um, is that one of the main things they do? is that they take a medium that it could be easy to see as very reductionist and that in some ways is really reductionist. So if you think about classic fairy tales um, without any of their kind of embellishment, just like the kind of key story, um, whether you got it from Brothers Grimm or you got it from kind of some indeterminable point before that, they're very simplistic stories in some ways. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the way that characters are created is very reductionist. I remember being quite young and being kind of taught that fairy tale characters are almost supposed to be kind of 2D because mm-hmm. that's how it's really easy to make moral moral messages work. Um, so there's a very clear division between good and evil in fairy tales. Um, and in particular, there's quite a limited roster of roles that women can take. Um, and those roles are often shown to be mutually exclusive. So you're a damsel or you're a maiden or you're an evil stepmother or you're a wizened witch and those kind of roles, none of them are particularly flattering, none of them are particularly nuanced. (laughs) Nope. Uh, (laughs) um, And they are often placed in direct opposition to each other. So women are seen as like the peak of good and the peak of bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much moralizing and a lot of that circles around women, women's voices, women's bodies, um, and kind of appropriate or inappropriate ways to use those things. And so that's kind of the basis they're coming from. And that's why I think they're really fertile ground, um, reimagined fairy tales to use those kinds of constraints and either to write within those constraints and show modern audiences kind of how how truly upsetting that can be to see Mm -hmm. especially if you're a woman to see yourself limited in that way or to see other women limited or blamed in that way but also using those categories as a really potent way to try and explode them um so like even in something like body chain by angela carter um it's kind of quoted as saying that she's very happy to put new wine in old bottles especially if the pressure of the new wine makes the bottles explode um which is a really lovely quote which is essentially saying she's kind of using these frameworks to create something new and i think it's interesting that kissing the witch is like kind of it's kind of like tagline to the title is old tales and new skins mm-hmm. so there's a lot of kind of interesting material here about people trying to repot or reconfigure things that seem really problematic in origin in order to to change that and if it can do that for the roles of women especially if it is to do with women's sexuality and their bodies and the way that women are represented then I feel like that is equally relevant for queer women and how relevant it is for queer women is being explored much more potently now 
Yeah, definitely. Like when I started reading this before um, recording it, obviously, I didn't realize how many. Like I didn't realize they were direct retellings. Like some mm. of them, I think some of them were retellings of stories that I'd not heard of because some of them. I was like, this sounds like a completely original story. I don't know what this is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, there were a couple like that for me as well. Even on this reread, this recent reread, I was like, okay, well, some of these are really familiar stories. Mm -hmm. And then some of them, yeah, they're very, like, they feel like they have a fairy tale feel, but I don't really know what this is retelling because this isn't like a story I accessed as a child or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um. And then I had a couple of moments of like, oh, I get it. It's that story, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is always, always fun. Yeah. Like the ones that stood out for me, like the ones I immediately recognized were uh, the retelling of like uh, Cinderella, Beauty and the mm-hmm. Beast, the Ariel one. Beauty and the Beast was yeah. actually my favorite story in the entire collection, personally. Oh, really? Yeah. It's really up there for me, actually. Yeah. I really like it. I think the way it ends is so perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me feel really happy and it is like a lovely ending but it's also so there's something very bittersweet about it Um, but yeah I think it's a really brilliant story I think that and the end story just because the end story does so much for for the way the whole narrative is constructed Mm -hmm. are some of my favourite ones yeah yeah I I thought the like the structural like narrative of the like the collection as a whole was incredibly interesting in the way that it's told as if it's one like a lineage of of stories being told yeah Um, did that does that relate to the kind of queer experience in your eyes yeah so I think that was that narrative structure is one of the things I was like most excited about when I first read this when I was I don't know about probably about four four or five years ago now um (laughs) It was one of the things I was most excited about, and I think it's one of the things that um, makes it queer, for lack of a better word, in terms of the the narration and the structure. So, especially talking about kind of moving, using a genre in which women are usually incredibly limited, um, and in which their roles are very, like, strictly defined and put in opposition to one another the way in which these stories are kind of passed between different women um, does so much really powerful work for collapsing that. So um, basically what we mean is that at the end of each story, there is a kind of like gap filler between Mm -hmm. that story and the next story um, where the protagonist, who is the narrator, the person who just told the story we just heard, asks the kind of like minor character character or the secondary character um in the story who is usually another woman um though sometimes it is another woman who is currently in the form of a bird or a horse um (laughs) but who has at some point been a woman um asks them like who were you before this who were you before you had this part in my story Mm -hmm. and the next character says will i tell you my story is the tale of a and is they have these different very like emblematic characters so tale of the shoe tale of the bird tale of the bros um and this kind of like passing on the baton of like it's your turn now um i think is really powerful because it removes this kind of hierarchy of main character and minor character because every minor character gets a shot at being the main character um and not just being the main character but being the narrator being able to tell their story in their own words and there's a lot of metaphor throughout this text about about writing and speaking and kind of materialities of writing and speaking um and relating using your words to kinds of magic so like there's a really beautiful moment in the first story where there's kind of a pun on spelling in terms of like casting a spell and like spelling something out when she says I could feel her spelling on the back of my neck. Um, And it's so gorgeous. And I just think it's so, there's so much magic wrapped up in this idea of telling your own story. And I think Mm -hmm. there's something very relatable in terms of queer community that not only are queer communities like at their best, 
not only are we trying to find ways to tell our own stories and to feel represented, but that it's really a responsibility of queer women to uplift other queer women's voices. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that everybody gets a chance to tell their story because the lady before asked her to tell her story and said, I want to know who you are before me. I want to know about you outside of my own life. Um, There's something really magical about that. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it also relates to the idea that like historically women's story and queer stories and queer women's stories get kind of historically erased like if you're you have to search you have to actively search for these stories when it comes to media even now you have to really look for them and that idea of saying I'm going to search out the story and I'm going to ask because this is important to me and it's important to it should be important to other people yeah I think is is really powerful and the idea of agency is really cool um I was looking I made notes when I was reading it and there were some really interesting notes (laughs) I felt like I was back at uni it was really good (laughs) but like there were some really subtle notes to um acknowledge what's the right word acknowledgements to or references to the idea of agency in stories I'm trying to find Mm. one that I really liked where'd it go Oh, I think it was in the Thumbelina tale when there's yes. a quote about saying, my husband had taken to referring to referring to me as if I was someone else. How is my dearest wife today? He would ask. And I would stare back mutely and think, I don't know. How is she? Where is she? Who is she? Bring her here so I can ask her how I am to live this life. And yeah. if any quote were to sort of scream about the lack of agency and also like the heteronormative societal values, it's that... <laughs> Yeah, just like, how can you ask me how I am when it's not up to me how I am? Like, it's up to you at this stage. Yeah. Um, I don't know who I am anymore. Um, yeah, definitely. There was a bit... Now I'm doing the same. Now I'm like, I definitely wrote something down. <laughs> um, there's like this idea of, I suppose, like, just linked to what you just said about it being heteronormative, that... Um, there's a lot of those yeah those kinds of subtle moments that show because obviously not every story there are there are there are a handful of stories that have explicitly women who love women relationships in them Mm -hmm. but not all of them and but I still feel like the text as a whole does a lot is is you could argue a largely feminist text but I see it as a queer feminist text as well and there's because there are a lot of references to basically what I would call compulsory heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of those are put in the terms of... the terms of fairy tales, or or of what we're used to with fairy tales, this idea of there is a kind of formula for the story. There's a formula for the story, there's a way that the story is supposed to go. And a lot of the protagonists in this book refer to their own lives as if they're aware that they're stories, Mm -hmm. or in the terms of stories, so... Things like saying, I had to know where how the story went, or um, in the first tale, in the retelling of Cinderella, I had got the story all wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's these ideas of, or um, I can't remember who says it, but somebody says, my story had been carved out for me before I was born. Like this idea of your life being set up for you by forces outside of yourself often male forces Mm -hmm. like your father deciding what man you're going to marry and humanize like these humanizing and kind of giving uh kind of flesh and reality to these characters so the fact that the story you have to confront the fact that the story is so tightly constrained means that their lives are also really tightly constrained and if you think about that character having a real life which they aren't allowed agency over it no longer is the kind of cute formula of a fairy tale um but it allows you to think i think about the kind of influence of stories that are that formulaic and that are that restrictive on our thinking Mm -hmm. and what it means to have been raised hearing these stories and understanding these stories yeah that i think that's just really interesting um I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about the idea of the kind of parallelism between the restrictions of a story, or specifically a short story as well, 
and the restrictions mm. of society because we live in a society as as joe might say <laughs> as joe would say yes exactly <laughs> um kind of focusing in on the the queer like the women of the women's stories in this because yes. there are like t- a couple explicitly i i definitely agree that i think a lot of them explore um heteronormative ideas mm-hmm. but are there any representations that of, of the explicit stories with women and women that you really liked or thought were interesting yeah i think the so i i i totted it up and there are to my mind two hinted <laughs> lesbian relationships mm-hmm. but that are like could that are based there are two like incredibly intimate female female relationships but that are not explicitly romantic but i think that are also interesting Mm-hmm. Um, and there are four like explicitly lesbian stories um, in this like 13 story collection and I think one of my favourites like, we spoke a little bit about the Beauty and the Beast one so maybe we can talk about that in a minute because I'd like to hear about what you thought of it mm-hmm. but they, um, the tale of the hair which was the retelling of Rapunzel um, oh yes is really quite dark um mm-hmm. but is one of my absolute favorites in this collection um because there's a real kind of like rawness of emotion in it and i think that it's a really interesting exploration of basically of a very true kind of love um but a love that then gets tangled up with jealousy I can't believe I just said tangled up when it's, we're talking about Rapunzel. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the connections are firing, I tell you, Alex. Um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think because I'm so interested in this whole collection about the kind of shifting the goalposts of how we um, how we categorise women mm-hmm. um, within these kind of fairy tale archetypes. And how that this whole text and the narrative structure we were talking about kind of push back against that categorization. That there is a really interesting exploration of the role of the witch in that story, mm-hmm. um, which is that you know she's not a named character, um, but we know when we start to read it and we realize it's a retelling of Rapunzel that she's supposed to be the witch. Mm-hmm. Um, she's supposed to be Rapunzel is a nice girl, and then there's a nasty lady. Um, who has stolen her. Um, but it's it's an interpretation of that story where Rapunzel is not her captor um, and they cohabitate willingly and lovingly. Um, and the reason that Rapunzel is high in a tower is because she asked mm-hmm. the witch to build the tower and she obliged. Um, and I think that's very sweet. Um, and I think it really does kind of shed some light. It goes into a little bit about how there are kind of hints that essentially, you know, this is a woman who taught her everything she knows. She taught her the names of the plants and she has like knowledge of herbs and things like that. And it's those little, little subtle hints of the kinds of things that are kind of basically a wise woman, how a wise woman becomes a witch, like under the right circumstances or I should say the wrong circumstances that someone could just decide that somebody is a witch. Um, mm-hmm. And I think especially because there is so much kind of work on language and agency and, you know, are you a witch because people call you a witch? Um, Or is there something else that makes you a witch, which is also explored in the last story. Um, I really enjoy that story because of her role. Um, But also because there is that kind of quite dark vein of jealousy in that story which is that they've their relationship is fraught by the fact that Rapunzel is a girl who has never met a man before but somehow she still has this idea that a prince will come and find her and marry her um and that's still something she yearns for and she's heard a song about it somewhere and that makes the witch incredibly jealous um and 
it makes her feel like she's not good enough and she's not done enough. And I think there's just something really, there's something really sweet and domestic about it as a story that it's about these two yeah. women like cohabiting in the forest and looking out for each other. Um, and then it has a really dark turn. <laughs> it does. It go- it's very, it's very, yeah. Peak cottagecore turns very quickly. Yeah, turns very um, gothic. But it is, it's an interesting, again, idea going, it again goes back to that heteronormative idea of being like, I'm in a really comfortable, loving situation where I can ask my witch girlfriend to make me a tower so I can be in in the sun and you know she'll do that but yeah um, maybe a man question mark yeah exactly (laughs) it's like you know it's like I have never known anything but this and everything I could want for is given to me and I am comfortable and I am cared and I'm loved for but I heard like there's like this guy with like a hunting horn (laughs) And like, <laughs> he's got really buff arms, and <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like I should at least explore that. Um. Mm-hmm. But it, the ending, however dark it is, at least has that sense of hope that the two will kind of continue on together. Yeah, I think definitely they they are in it together, and there's a role there's a role reversal. It's kind of it's interesting because so many of these stories like to talk about. What I love about them I kind of feel like I have to like speak the whole plot but I mm-hmm. also want people to hear this and maybe read it for themselves so I don't want to ruin everything mm-hmm. but there is a kind of role reversal where the Rapunzel character goes from being the person that's been cared for to having to be the one who cares and who has to teach the witch and who and who has to help her um and I do agree, yeah, that's why I think it's bittersweet because there's a real hopeful note that they will they will continue together and they will find a way. Um, and that ultimately kind of the dark and painful things that happened at the climax of the story were just because they fundamentally misunderstood each other but also they really cared about each other. Um, so yeah, I really, really... I really love that relationship. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, as well as the Beauty and the Beast relationship, because I think it's just such a good, like, the whole story is such a good bait and switch. <laughs> um, it is, like, just a kind of, you're like, yeah, I'm just reading a version of Beauty and the Beast, and, you know, the, it's quite vague all the way through, um, because the Beast is, like, a masked figure, which I've, like, read other versions where, you know, where it's not, like, in the Disney version, where it's, like, that he's a beast in the animal sense, where, like, this is this stranger hides their identity and you don't know why they hide their face. You don't know what the nature of their, mm-hmm. you know, in inverted brackets, like deformity is the word they use in the story or whatever it is. Um, and it just continues so long. And then at the end of the story, it's just like, it's gay. Um, <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> I just thought this one was a really interesting story. I, I love the introduction. Um, the first line when it's like in this life I have nothing to do but cavort on the wind but in my last life in my last it was my fate to be a woman mm. and I think like yeah, I kind of mentioned a lot of these stories talk about womanhood in a very um interesting way and I like the way that it is played upon here in the sense of she's allowed to be a really caring figure Belle is allowed to be to look after her father and mm-hmm. um, kind of, in the end, care for the beast and isn't punished for that. Because I feel like a lot of these, a lot of, like, feminist texts can, a lot of people kind of claim they're anti-feminist because they'll be like, ah, oh, but a woman cannot be allowed to care because it's womanly. It's like, no, it's just a one aspect of human nature. Yeah, exactly, that's the thing. I think it's the point of when you think about what roles women are allowed to occupy right now we're talking about in fairy tale you know stories but mm-hmm. also in the parallel in the parallel that has with like the roles we're told to play um in our own lives that i don't think uh, yeah i don't think it's a productive object of a feminist text 
to say, well, the idea of the evil queen is sexist, so we will have no evil queens. Or the idea of the twee domestic homemaker is sexist, so we will have no kind of cottagecore lovely girls or, you know, Belle's looking after her father. Um, because the point is not that any of those roles are not roles that women can have. Um, it's just that those are not the only roles that women can have. Like, women are not equally kind of separated in this kind of... in that in that dichotomous way or, you know, or if they occupy those roles that's not all of who they are. Like you say, that's one that's one element of yourself as a person and one element of human experience. Um, and so I think in particular, the thing that I love the most about this story, um, with this collection, in addition to the fact that each new story starts because a woman before is kind of giving space mm-hmm. for the next character's story, is that because the minor character in the first story then gets to tell their own story you see you see these women occupy more than one of those roles mm-hmm. like within within a lifetime you know or, or or sometimes within a shorter span than that um and you slowly start to piece it together and it's really easy once you've started the next story to just view it in isolation mm-hmm. because it is a short story collection so you're you're focusing on the protagonist of that story but if you remember the person speaking is the person from the last story as well then it's really interesting so I like made a note of some of the transformations because I think some of them are really easy um really interesting so like the beast figure in the story we were just talking about is also the snow white figure mm-hmm. and it that kind and you're like okay so she was the the, the kind of proverbial villain of the story before and we thought she was going to be the villain of the piece and not only is she not the villain of the piece, but she's not just this woman who's been locked up in a castle wearing a hood. When she was younger, before she met Belle, she had this whole other life. And in that life, she wasn't the villain figure. She was the kind of young, beautiful girl who was at the mercy of the people around her. Um, or like another really interesting one is that kind of the figure that is kind of like the female kind of Rumpelstiltskin figure. I really like the Rumpelstiltskin story as well. Um, I think it's a really interesting take on it. Is also Gretel in the Hansel and Gretel retelling that follows. Mm-hmm. And so like making this kind of like actually tracing back steps, I was kind of like, okay, if you actually view this as a whole collection, it's a collection of these quite intimately interconnected stories in which these women are very different when they're relating to different people. The stories they tell of their own childhood or of their own experiences with love or with marriage are very different to the roles they maybe occupy in the stories where they were introduced, where often they have the role of that they are helping the protagonist, you know, they're a support they're a support to or an antagonist to the main character. And I think it's it's just such rich ground like say Mm -hmm. to allow these characters we don't have to we don't have to do away with the with those roles or those archetypes or like and how like symbolically rich they are for us because Mm -hmm. that's one of the major things about fairy tales and why I think there's an appeal to rewrite fairy tales um is because starting with material that's like incredibly familiar to us and that is really symbolically potent is a really great way to make people engage with stories, but if you can make them engage and be reflective and critical about them, then all the better for that. Mm-hmm. And I think adding to that, some of the transformations actually mm. add to each of the stories thematically. It's um, like thinking about the snow to the beast one. It makes sense for a character who kind of was persecuted for her beauty would then choose to become a beastly figure by hiding how she looks. And again, and like having that kind of knowledge, obviously you only get that later, but it kind of recontextualizes that story and gives it that added meaning of knowing in in a world where if you're beautiful, you get better things, but also get 
a lot of like hatred and jealousy and mm. men who think that because of that you're either dumb or can be taken advantage of but while at the same time if you are I say ugly but I'm saying it in air quotes just like yeah not the stereotypical beauty yeah. then you are kind of you don't you have a harder time in life just from that like it just enriches it with so much more yeah and definitely it's, it's just so interesting yeah if you yeah it kind of reinflects so if you went back and read the tale of the rose the beauty and the beast one and you're like okay so of course this woman would like you say like choose to hide her face and not be defined by her appearance anymore but also of course she would issue like marriage um and you know not necessarily want to have children and produce an heir because when you know that she is also the snow white figure you know that she was raised within this kind of context of royal lineage mm-hmm. where birth deaths and marriages ruled her life so heavily because she lost her mother and you know and then had a complicated relationship with her stepmother and yeah all of this was kind of controlled by her father and if you could issue that you would mm-hmm. um so yeah i think um it does it is like they work so well as standalones but those kind of to use kind of I suppose like the material terms of the text itself those kind of like threads that run through mm-hmm. um make it so much more exciting and it'll contribute so much to um taking away that kind of two-dimensional element I was talking about earlier making these really very they're all very complicated women and mm-hmm. um, yeah I think that also relates um quite a lot to the last two tales the tale of the voice and the tale of the kiss mm-hmm. the latter of which is I mean is it explicitly queer I think I mean I think it is <laughs> yeah I suppose I was thinking about that I was like well there's no kind of oh yes they're a couple now but mm-hmm. you know in my mind a, two ladies kiss and one of the ladies is definitely in love with the other lady mm-hmm. so I think that's explicitly sapphic um but yeah I think that's that's such a nice it's such a nice stopping point um for the collection mm-hmm. I think for lots of different reasons but it's also because it is I think some of the stories are quite like I say kind of self-aware in some ways because they have a kind of meta-narrative of oh like this isn't how my story was supposed to go or you know kind of reference to story but I think I would say in some ways the last story is one of the most self-reflective in the collection because the protagonist herself does a lot of this kind of witch figure protagonist does a lot of reflecting on how it is that she became to be a witch and what it means to be a witch Mm -hmm. um and that's just as much about the stories that are told about you as what you actually do or say. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I really love the idea that, uh, that like, she just wants to, like, set up camp in her cave. Um, and there's that little boy that's like, what happened to the old witch? Like, what did you do to her? Did you boil her in a pot? Mm-hmm. And she's just like, okay, um... And so she says, like, she's essentially, like, they they created the witch because they, you know, they wanted a witch. They had this idea, the townspeople had this idea that the, the reclusive lady that lives up in the cave out of the main town and who knows about the seas and the winds and the herbs, she is a witch and how... The witch is this kind of like derided figure and like being designated a witch is reductionist and kind of unpleasant Mm -hmm. but that it's also kind of like that that it's a needed figure like it's a needed archetype because even if they will say they're afraid of the witch they kind of wish her into being Mm -hmm. and then come to her when they have problems um so i think that's really really interesting um yeah yeah, I, I definitely read this tale as like a um a very much her reclaiming 
the story and the idea of the witch. Yeah. Because she, yeah, she says that she learned to be what they needed, but also makes like an effort to simultaneously say, like, I wouldn't become a hag. And I, like, she still makes a point of saying, I did what I wanted and asked for what she wants. Like, she, uh, there's a really lovely bit where, yeah, she initially says, like, oh, so it was a witch they wanted, that's what I became. But then there's also the really lovely bit where she kind of realises the power that she has. Um, and she says, like, it's power, power that not that came not from my own thin body or my own taught mind, but was invested in me by a village. So she says they give her the power, but then she says that she has to learn how to pick it up without getting burnt, how to shape it and conceal it and flaunt it and use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it beca- it's this thing that they give to her, but it becomes her own. And she takes ownership of it. Um, and she is no longer a woman who has been designated witch. She is a woman that says, well, actually, this life suits me. Yeah. And I, and, and I have a power I can use and I, and I will take ownership of that. And so it is almost, like you say, that reclaiming of almost... Uh, the way, I think the way in which a lot of women and queer women as well if we're going to be more specific, like, you sometimes do have to, in order to feel like you're getting what, getting the places you want to go, or, like, to live the life you want within rigid systems that try and reduce you, sometimes you do feel like you have to play the system of something, so, you know, you have to lean into the roles that people allocate you, because it's easier than trying to resist them. Mm-hmm. You know, or you have to you have to acquiesce in some way, or you know that it, it it might suit you actually that it's it's not fair and it's nonsensical that men or or people who are not queer might view you as different and other and not enough, but that might work in your favor because it means that they underestimate you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's there's that dynamic at play to a certain extent. There. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think even that ties into the character who the the final person she, the witch, um, helps, the the girl mm. who she ends up um, kissing, and the idea that both mother and father are like, like she's too much of a child, or no, she's not enough of a child, and she's not enough of a lady, mm. and. And she helps her kind of just get her parents off the girl's back and allow her to be mm. just an, who she wants to be. Yeah. I think that's what also is like kind of more, quite self-aware about that story as well, yeah. That the rest of the stories in having these like shifting perspectives and shifting roles they occupy um, have, have collapsed those roles a bit and showed them. But then very explicitly in that last story, we see a person who like, without the witch's help, without the witch's intervention, it's essentially being, like, pulled in two opposite directions. Mm-hmm. Because as a young woman, she is supposed to simultaneously be um, an obedient child, um, an innocent and, you know, naive, but also be willing to marry a much older man. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, that's that's without even the element that, you know, obviously there are no, arguably there are no lesbian characters or bisexual characters in this book because it's not labelled. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's one of the strengths in itself that it's not it's not a text about lesbians or about bisexual women. They, they are, their, their sexualities are not kind of designated or ex- kind of discussed because that's not the framework we're existing in. They are just representations of women in various kinds of relationships in women, uh, with women. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's even without the dynamic that this is a woman who really happily, willingly kisses the witch. Like, the witch asks for a kiss because she feels like it's a really shocking and terrible thing to ask for. Mm-hmm. And the girl's just kind of like, that's really easy, you're cute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 
which is such a lovely moment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for, for all we know, um, she has no interest in marrying her dad's mate because she has no interest in men. Um, and, yeah, I think that is a kind of, that's a very real figuration of... Um, women are kind of expected to be everything and nothing. Um, mm-hmm. I think this is a collection that lets them be everything um, or nothing, <laughs> lets them, but on their own terms. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that really does kind of sum up this collection. Obviously, I've had a lot less time to kind of sit with it, but I, I really enjoyed it. And I think the final story, as you were saying, like does sum up a lot of the main um, ideas and themes addressed by the collection in its entirety. And mm. I, I just really like the final line and how it yes. is, it ties in with that and ties in with the narrative structure. Because when I read it, that, that very, very last line, I thought was like, that's to me. That's not, she's not talking to um, the person from the other tale. Like, she's talking to me. Yes, exactly. Um, I felt exactly that. And I think that when I wrote about this in my dissertation, even in the first instance, um, I wrote quite like quite a large section of my discussion was about the last the last story and and just about the end, mm-hmm. um, and yeah because the like like you said like we use the word lineage at the beginning and that's a really lovely word for how I feel about the way that these tales commence, um, but it could can it's kind of the way it's constructed it could really continue like ad infinitum you know what I mean like it's kind of showing there are these myriad connections between all of these different women mm-hmm. and all of these different women who love women, you know. Um, and some of these women that love women have had past relationships with other women or they've had past relationships with men. Um, and it kind of just continues and continues, but the collection has to stop somewhere. Um, and if the, the structure is that each woman asks another woman for her story, it it doesn't it kind of can't finish until someone says that they're done speaking um and the witch in the last story basically says she's done speaking um and i really love her kind of cutting off her tail um and not giving us any more as frustrating as it is because it seems like she's about to you know pursue the lesbian love of her life mm-hmm. and we would love <laughs> to know how that goes mm-hmm. um <laughs> it's frustrating but she she kind of she kind of stops the, the storytelling and I feel like there is so much of our discussion that's like centered on the agency to be whoever you want to be but also how much that's wrapped up in being able to tell stories about yourself rather than just have stories told about you and being kind of like the arbiter of your own story and being able to represent yourself mm-hmm. I feel like there's just as much agency in refusing to tell your story as there is in telling your story yeah. um she is very in control in that moment she's in control and i love that she says you know all of the different reasons why you might not want to tell a story um including that it might be too easy to need telling or too hard to explain um and there's a kind of a bit of a like you should already know this i shouldn't be having to tell you this uh energy but yeah the way that it ends with leaving it with us and you're right like she's 100 percent talking to us and the I suppose the collection ends, but the idea is that it's left open because she is petitioning somebody else to take her story and tell their own, but she's petitioning us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I adore that she says, I leave it in your mouth, not I leave it in your hands. Yeah. Um, because it's such a kind of visceral embodiment of this idea of t- tell it, like use your voice and speak up. Mm-hmm. But also, like I said, the connections between the idea of like speaking or writing um with magic and with intimacy as well it's a story about a kiss um so the kind of sight of the kiss and the sight of the telling of the story is the mouth and she leaves her story in our mouth so that we can then tell our own and it kind of is this kind of I I feel like I sound really pretentious but I'm figuring out this idea like live now as I talk (laughs) as I talk this it's it's kind of like a kiss you know yeah. it's she she leaves it in our mouth um, i love it i adore it yeah it's just it's so simple and just so powerful mm. it's really it's really powerful yeah 
I feel like that's a really nice place to kind of wrap it up. We'll end at the yes. end. <laughs> Definitely. Um, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I am very happy with that. I'm very happy okay. to talk about the last bit. And I think that is a really nice place to finish, yeah. Brilliant. Is there anything you uh, have to plug? Any where people can find you for any other fairy tale ramblings or the like? Yes. Um, so I would say if you um, enjoyed hearing about Kissing the Witch and if you read Kissing the Witch and you enjoy it, I would very much recommend the other book we mentioned very briefly at the beginning, which is Tangleweed and Brine by Deirdre Sullivan. It is also a collection of fairy tales. It is also written by an Irish young adult fiction author. Um, it seems very fertile ground for those kind of authors. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like Kissing the Witch engages with some it rewrites fairy tales in ways that engage with some very real life issues for women I think um, in ways that are really really powerful and also has some lovely queer representation um, I can be found on Twitter is the main place it's probably best um, I do have a kind of blog I'm working on at the moment including um, a couple of articles on this sort of topic but they'll be linked on my Twitter so it's easiest to find me there so you can find me at bibliophile, but um, like a bisexual bibliophile. So it's <laughs> bi underscore bibliophile um, at bi underscore bibliophile, um, which I was very proud of when I did. It's great, uh, even though it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but yeah, you can find me there. Brilliant. I'll also link that um, in the description uh, in case. It, it's easy to do that so I'll do that anyway yes <laughs> um but no this has been lovely I've really enjoyed this thank you so much I've really enjoyed it too thank you for giving me a chance to talk about this so that was the fifth episode of Pride Pals thank you so much for listening as ever it really does mean a lot and I hope you enjoyed it as I said before all the information to find Rhiannon will be in the description below and to keep up with Pride Pals, you can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Dewing, which will also be in the description below. If you love queer entertainment and would like to be featured on one of these episodes and chat to me about what it is you love, please don't be afraid to ask. My DMs are always open. Um, but for now, I'll see you in the next episode.